0: CHAPTER Two OF THINGS SEEN IN FLORENCE BY ELIZABETH Grierson THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN BY BRIDGE AND RIVER IF THE GENERAL OPINION OF THOSE WHO KNOW FLORENCE BEST WERE TAKEN AS TO WHERE SIGHTSEEING SHOULD BEGIN, THERE IS LITTLE DOUBT THAT THE ANSWER WOULD BE EITHER AT THE PIAZZA DEL DUOMO OR THE PIAZZA DELLA SIGNORIA. BUT I SHOULD GO, FIRST OF ALL, TO THE PONTE VECCHIO, that quaintest of quaint bridges, which spans the Arno near the centre of the town, because it is there, more than anywhere else, that one enters into the realisation of how things began, not only of how the city came to be built, but of how the artistic genius, which suddenly sprang to birth, and flowed over the whole of Tuscany in the 14th and 15th centuries, was nourished and fostered, not in regular studios and in elaborate surroundings, but in tiny little botteghi or workshops, wherein serving their time as goldsmiths' apprentices and learning to model and carve in precious metals, such great masters as Verrocchio, Brunelleschi, Ghiberti, Donatello, Botticelli, Leonardo da Vinci, Perugino and Michelangelo learned the rudiments of their art. For, with the exception of a few open arches in the centre, The bridge is lined on either side, with a long row of tiny, irregularly built shops, most of which are occupied by goldsmiths and jewellers. These men do not only sell their wares on the old bridge, they have their homes and workshops there as well, and if we take the trouble to do so, we can get many a glimpse into the well-lit workshops which are to be found behind the tiny front rooms, and see skilled craftsmen and their apprentices clad in clean linen overalls, bending over their benches, busy at their work. Where the living rooms in these tiny houses are, it would be difficult to say, were it not, that one can retrace one's steps to the broad street or quay, which runs along the north bank of the river, and which is known as the Lungarno, from which we can obtain an outside view, as it were, of the ancient bridge. Then we see that built out from the back of the houses which are crowded upon it, there are numberless little extensions, odd rooms, balconies, and loggias, which literally overhang the river, and cling like swallows' nests to the walls of the original buildings. It is in these that the families of the goldsmiths dwell, and delightfully quaint and cosy places of abode they must be. Along one side of the bridge, Rising above the shops is a curious stone gallery which runs the whole length of the structure and loses itself in the houses which crowd down to the water's edge on the southern bank of the river and at the other side in a stately building which abuts on the Lungarno. Having noted all this, let us go back to the centre of the bridge and leaning over the parapet under one of the open arches gaze down into the green waters of the Arno and think for a moment of the story of the growth of the city, and of the part which this ancient structure and its predecessor played therein. It will not be wasted time, for it will help us to understand better the meaning of many of the things we shall see in Florence. We think first of all of the Etruscans, that strange artistic people, about whom so little is known, who came from the East at least a thousand years before the Christian era, and took possession of the greater part of northern Italy, establishing themselves in colonies on the tops of high hills, where they could defend themselves with comparative ease against all comers. One of these colonies fixed on the hill of Fiesole, which stands to the north of Florence, and overlooks the valley of the Arno at this point. There they built for themselves a citadel and walled town, For many centuries, while as yet the city of Florence was unthought of, the Etruscans lived and flourished there, as they did in other parts of the country. Then gradually, the Romans obtained the supremacy, and the Etruscans became the conquered race. It must have been in those days, when the lords of the world were spreading their network of high roads all over Europe, that the first little bridge over the Arno was built, to carry the highway which led to Rome. Then it was, that the dwellers in Fiesole, who through marriage and other causes, were gradually losing their individuality, and becoming merged in the Roman nation, came down from their homes on the hilltop, and began to build houses for themselves near the end of the bridge, in the flowery meadow which lay between the river and the hill, on which their city stood. This we know, because Etruscan remains have been found near the side of the old market-place, now occupied by the modern and exceedingly ugly Piazza Vittorio Emanuele. The little cluster of houses grew and extended, till at last it blossomed into a township, for which a name had to be found to distinguish it from the parent city on the hill. Numerous explanations have been given why the appellation of Florence was chosen. Some say that it is derived from the name of a Roman general, Florinus, who encamped in the meadow, and fell in a skirmish with the Fiesolans. Others, that it is a corruption of the word Fluentia, and that the town was so named because it was situated at the junction of the Arno and the Mugnone, a stream which flows into the Arno at this spot. But the most popular and reasonable, as well as the most picturesque derivation, is that the name was taken from the lilies, the Iris Florentia, which grew as they grow to-day in wild profusion in the fields. When, a century before the Christian era, the distinguished Roman general Sulla, acquired by force of arms the dictatorship of Rome, he punished all who had sided with his rival Marius by depriving them of the Roman franchise and bestowing their territory upon his own soldiers. The Fiesolans and Florentines seem to have been amongst the number for the old records tell us that their land was taken from them and bestowed on one of Sulla's legions. The new colonists speedily gave to Florence the character of a Roman town, laying it out in miniature on the model of Rome. It was believed to be under the special protection of Martyr or Mars, the god of war, and a statue of this god was erected on the north bank of the river near the end of the old bridge. A hundred and sixty years later, Christianity was introduced. As early as AD 313, we find a bishop established here who had, for his cathedral, a little church, dedicated, it is supposed, to San Salvador, which stood where the magnificent Duomo now stands. Thus, at a very early date, we find the nucleus of the present city. The bridge, which was her raison the church and the market, which was held in what had been the Roman Forum, and which existed as the Mercato Vecchio until not so many years ago. With the marketplace and the bridge in our minds, we can trace for ourselves the gradual growth of the city's prosperity, a prosperity which had brought it, by the end of the 12th century, to the proud position of a small commonwealth, which was governed by its own magistrates, and owned no allegiance to any outside power with a high-road which connected them on the one hand with all parts of the great continent which lay on the other side of the Alps, and which on the other led direct to Rome, and with easy access to the seaports both of the Mediterranean and the Adriatic. The merchants of Florence were not content with merely carrying on their business at home, but pushed their way farther and farther afield, until they were known, especially as traders in silk and wool in every part of the known world, from Syria to Great Britain. And, luckily for themselves, they were not ashamed of their trades, even when they grew so rich and powerful that they lived in palaces and founded families who ranked with those of the nobles of the land, but banded themselves together in arti or in guilds, and were as proud of belonging to the guild of the hosiers or the silk merchants or the armourers or the goldsmiths as someone at the present time might be of belonging to a family which came over with the conqueror. It shows us something of the manly pride and satisfaction which these old Italian burghers took in their honest handicrafts, when we read that no one, not even a noble, might become one of the eight priori, or governing magistrates of the city, unless he belonged to one or other of the trades guilds. But although these merchant princes were proud of their city, and of the means by which she had risen to the position of influence and power which she held, they were terribly jealous of one another, and no sooner did the head of one family show signs of becoming of more importance than the heads of other families, than the latter, forgetting for the moment their own petty quarrels, banded themselves together to overthrow their upstart neighbour. So there were constant frays and fights going on in the narrow streets, just as bickers and tullsies used to go on between the members of the various Scottish clans in the streets of the Scottish capital. So, in order that they might have strongly guarded places of refuge, these rich Florentine merchants built for themselves enormous mansions, which bore and still bear the proud name of palazzi or palaces, but which were in reality fortresses and when the doors were bolted and barred, could quite well stand a siege if need be. These palaces still remain in the streets to-day, massive and impregnable as ever, and, as we walk through their lofty rooms, and examine the vaulted ceilings and frescoed walls, the wrought metal and quaint woodwork that adorn them, we realise what strange contrast the lives of these city fathers presented. They took their full share in the rude and barbarous strife and bloodshed that went on in the streets, while, at the same time, they lived in stately dignity, and did all that in them lay to encourage art and culture. For awakening in the year 1294 to the fact that the cathedrals were being built in Pisa and Siena, and not wishing to be outdone in municipal zeal by the signoria of these neighbouring and rival cities, They bestirred themselves, and securing the services of a skilled architect, Arnolfo de Cambio, set to work to build in haste, not only a cathedral, but a palace for themselves as well, in which they could transact municipal business, also a palace for the Bargello, or head of the police, and another great church, that of Santa Croce. Of course, Arnolfo did not live to see these buildings completed. Other men had to be found. Giotto, Brunelleschi, and Ghiberti, to finish them, but it seemed almost as if the need arose in order to call out the latent genius, derived perhaps from their Etruscan ancestors, which lay hidden in many a Tuscan schoolboy of that day. For not only had the buildings to be completed, it was also necessary that they should be embellished, so we find the various guilds in their corporate capacities, offering large sums of money for an altarpiece or fresco, or a bit of statuary to be placed in church, or hall, or market. And youths who had hitherto been content to be apprentices in the workshop of some goldsmith or sculptor, vied with each other to obtain the prizes, and, in so doing, succeeded in producing such magnificent works of art, that they sprang at once into the notice, not only of the inhabitants of Florence, but of the whole of Italy. It was when the Bargello and the Palazzo della Signoria were a building that the old bridge on which we stand was reared, the earlier Roman structure having been destroyed by a flood in 1333. Nearly six centuries have passed since then, and most of the old manners and customs of medieval Florence have disappeared, swallowed up in the cosmopolitanism of the 20th century. Standing on the Ponte Vecchio, however, and watching the ordinary everyday life of the people. We have two links that bind us to the past. One is, as we saw before, the jewellers and goldsmiths shops, with their busy workmen, for although the old guilds are now disbanded, the craft of the artificer in precious metals seems to have been handed down from father to son, and we cannot forget, as we look at the tiny, cage-like houses, that they were specially built for the guild of goldsmiths, by Cosmo de' Medici, first Grand Duke of Florence. It was the same Cosmo who caused the covered gallery that runs along the bridge to be built, in order that he might have a private means of communication between his two ducal residences, the Pitti Palace, which stands on the south of the river, and the Palace of the Uffizi, which stands near the end of the bridge on the north. The other link is to be found in the Renaioli, or Sand Collectors, who at all times of the day are to be seen at work, either in their boats on the surface of the broad river, which flows under the bridge, or on the bare stretches of sand and pebbles which border its banks. Sometimes we would take these men for fishermen, sometimes for casual labourers, and it comes rather as a surprise when we are told that they are a distinct clan by themselves, whose occupation has been handed down from father to son for centuries, and who are deeply resentful if any outsider tries to push himself into their ranks. It was probably the building of the great palaces which called the Renaoli, as a class, into existence. There were good stone quarries within reasonable distance of Florence, where plenty of solid blocks of stone were to be obtained, but the Signoria required the walls of their palace fortresses to be as strong as the solid rock. so as there was always a plentiful supply of gravel and sand in the bed of the Arno, brought down in flood time from the neighbouring hills. The medieval architects hit on the method of building a double wall of stone, and filling in the intervening space with coarse gravel, and then completing the process by pouring over the gravel enough cement made of fluid sand and water to form it, when the mortar had set, into one solid mass, which, as the centuries have proved, is almost indestructible. This method of building is obsolete, but as a residential town, Florence is always extending, and both in the city itself and in the villages round about, there is a constant demand for sand, for making mortar, etc., so that the trade of the Renaolo is a fairly lucrative one. Besides, he is a fisherman as well, so he has two strings to his bow, for when he cannot obtain sand, he catches fish, and when the day is unpropitious for fishing, he turns his attention back to sand. There are two classes of Renaoli for every sand-gatherer has not money to buy a boat. So the labour is divided, the aristocrats of the profession being the boatsmen, or barcaoli, who go out on the river and gather in the finer sorts of sand. The others are the piaggiaiole, who, possessing no boats, are compelled to remain on the banks, collecting what sand they can obtain there, and separating it from stones and pebbles by throwing it against a wire screen, placed in a sloping position, so that the sand goes through the meshes and falls in an ever-increasing heap on the ground behind, while the gravel and stones fall back from the screen and are cast away as useless. The Barcaiolo, on the other hand, has nothing to do with a spade or a sieve, for with his flat-bottomed boat, he is in a position to go all over the river, seeking for the sand which, after a flood, is deposited in little sandbanks in the bed of the Arno. His boat, as we see, is of a curious build, low at the prow, high at the stern, where there is a little raised platform, the predellino, on which the bacaiolo stands when he is punting his little craft along with his long pole trying to locate a sandbank, for these deposits vary in situation with every flood. When he has found one, he moors his boat beside it, again with the aid of his pole. Then, lifting his palla, which is just another pole with an iron scoop at the end of it, he scoops the sand up into the body of his boat, until it is so heavily laden that it sinks to the water level. Then he makes for the shore, where he sells his boatload to a carter, who in turn sells it to a builder. Six lire a cartload can be obtained for good sand, and as the price is rising, it is computed that a renaiolo can earn from his dealings in this commodity alone something like fifty pounds a year. It is very picturesque to watch these bacaioli at work, for in warm weather, They often throw off all their upper garments, and we see them standing, lithe and alert, clad only in a ragged shirt and bright-coloured sash, their supple sunburned limbs, showing brown and bronze against the clear translucent green of the river, while the wet sand, piled at their feet in the centre of the boat, glistens and sparkles in the sunlight. When the building trade is slack, and the demand for sand falls off, or at odd times such as the evening when the hard work of the day is done, Renaioli turn their attention to fishing. They find this also a lucrative employment, as any fish which is brought from the sea is expensive, and can only be bought by the richest section of the community. So the fishermen of the Arno cater for the general public. After they have caught their fish, they carry them into the poorer streets in gourds strung to their waists, and wander up and down, hawking their wares. No matter whether they fish from the banks of the river or from their boats, they never use a line, but always a net, and the variety of these nets and the different methods of using them add to the variety and interest of the scene. There is the betaila, a bag-shaped net, which is stretched on rings and set in the osiers by the side of the river, and the cacha and trap-pola, which are fastened to frames like shrimping nets and pushed in front of waders, and the bilancia, which we see fastened by four corners to a crossed bamboo and let down from the prow of the boats. About eight varieties of fish are to be found in the Arno, including grogni, or eels, trota, or trout, arena or carp, and brocioli, a fish which needs to be most carefully prepared for cooking as it is poisonous, and serious consequences might follow if every care were not taken in preparing it for the table. We have already spoken of the colouring of Florence as being one of its greatest charms, and nowhere can this be studied to greater advantage than from the Ponte Vecchio, and from two other bridges which span the Arno above and below it, the Ponte Alle Grazia and the Ponte Santa Trinita, Indeed, it is quite impossible to describe the delicate, almost unearthly effects which one gets there in varying seasons and at different hours of the day. To begin with, the river varies in colour, as no other river seems to vary. A thread of gold under the midsummer sun, the chilly tramontana of winter, sweeping down from the Apennines, turns it to a dirty grey or the colour of steel. Again, after a spate, it flows into a tawny brown torrent, flecked with yellow foam, showing by its colour, the amount of earth and sand which it carries along with it. Then, when the flood has subsided and the sand fallen to the bottom, although the current still flows strong, it has changed its hue to a green that is as clear as jade, and which will change again to a rosy red in the rays of the setting sun, deepening into purple where the shadows fall. Then there are the houses of the Borgo San Jacopo, and those of the Via de Bardi, which stand with their backs going straight down to the river, so that there is not even a footpath between the walls and the water. Surely, if there is a quaint bit of architecture to be found anywhere, it is to be found here. The backs of those houses are one mass of picturesque towers and gables, and overhanging roofs, of queer projecting windows, tiny loggias and unexpected bits of hanging gardens sandwiched in, perhaps, between a buttress and a balcony, over the rail of which the family washing is drying in the sun. The houses are old and rather dilapidated, for this is one of the most ancient parts of the city, but all deficiencies are covered, to the casual observer at least, by the deliciously soft tints of the lime-wash by which the walls are coated. Different shades of yellow are the prevailing colours here, from the palest cream to saffron and orange, but fawny tints are to be found also, terracottas and pinks fading imperceptibly into heliotrope. The dark reddy-brown of the tiled roofs gives a restful contrast, and these again stand out clear and sharp against the deep blue of the Italian sky. Indeed, in summer, the view from any of these bridges might be a little too vivid were it not for the sombre background which is formed by the stately cypresses, which clothe the hill of San Miniato, which rises behind the old houses on the south. As we stand here, looking from bridge to river, and from river to ancient dwelling-houses, we notice that the piscatorial art is not confined to the renaoli. For here and there at the side of windows, set far up in the crumbling walls, we see nets suspended by pulleys, which the inhabitants let down into the river occasionally, and we imagine that it is upon the nature of the catch that the next family meal depends. End of chapter 2